My name is Greg Seeger. I wrote a book uh, that was published in 2012 called When Healthcare Hurts, which is kind of a play on Brian Fickert's title, When Helping Hurts. But the idea was to try to incorporate some of those ideas that we've been talking about for years uh, in, uh, in short-term missions and how to, how to try to think through uh, some of the issues with medical missions because there is a tremendous need for primary health care, uh, both at the community level and the hospital level in developing communities. But some of what we have, uh, some of what we have been doing hasn't been, I think, you know, the standard I think that any of us would like to achieve as healthcare professionals. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. And I wanted to talk, I wanted to start by just sharing a story that uh, I first heard in my, uh, my discipleship training school at Mercy Ships by one of the development uh, workers. Her name was Christine Colby. I think she still works with YWAM in uh, Kona. Uh, and it's, the, uh, it's called The Lion Story. And to me, it pointed out a lot of the problems with, uh, with short-term missions and the way I was working in short-term missions and leading groups. And... It goes like this. There was a community in Africa, and you'll have to forgive me because I'm not a very good storyteller, but that ought to tell you that you guys can do this too. <laughs> uh, there was a community in Africa that had a problem with lions, and, and this hadn't happened in many, many years, but all of a sudden, one night, a lion came into the village and, and killed somebody. And uh, this was a really traumatic event, but it hadn't happened in so many years that they assumed that it was going to be a one-time event. And they uh, were very remorseful and concerned and assumed that it would be a one-time thing, but it happened again the next night. And then again the next night and again the next night. At this point, the community decided they needed to do something about it, so they brought the community together and they began to, uh, to talk about how can we address this? Who can we reach out to for help? So they decided in committee fashion that they needed to send uh, someone to the city to ask for help from the government. So that's what they did. They sent somebody on a bus trip way across the country who met with the government officials, and the government officials assured them that there would be a game warden dispatched to their area to take care of the line problem. So they went home feeling like they had accomplished something, and uh, the game warden never came. And the, again, the lion came back and continued to come back each night and stalk the village. Uh, at this point, the community gathered together again and they said, what can we do? So one person said, well, there's a non-governmental organization or a mission organization a couple communities over that may be able to help us. So they went and appealed to them. And that organization said, yeah, let us, let us think about it. And they all got together and had a meeting and decided, well, yeah, we should be able to help this community. We can put up sirens. And that should scare away the lions. So they said, okay, well, that, that, may, that may be of some benefit. So they came in and they installed these sirens in the community. And it scared the lions away. So that, it seemed to fix the problem, and everybody was happy. But a couple days later, the lion came back, and it wasn't afraid of the sirens anymore. 
and it again began to plague the community. So they gathered again and decided, what can we do? So they reached out to another non-governmental organization in another direction in a couple towns over. And, and that government organization said, yeah, we, we, will, we would love to try to help you. So they gathered together and they had meetings and they decided that they should put lights with the sirens. And that would probably for sure scare the lions away if the lights came on. So they came and they installed the lights. And it worked for a short time, but again, the same problem reoccurred. The lions came back. So they said, now what do we do? So they said, okay, let's, let's talk to one more aid organization, and they should for sure be able to help us. So they went to, uh, they went to this other organization. They said, okay, we've got the answer. We're going to build a fence for you. So they came in and they built a fence all the way around the village. And that was the end of the lion problem, at least in the village, at least for a time. And everybody was celebrating. Everybody was happy. And this went on for a few weeks, and there was it, the problem really appeared to be solved at this point. But then one morning, uh, some of the moms and the children went out to gather water, like they always do at the riverside, and the, and the lion attacked again. So the problem wasn't solved. So the community had to gather again, and, and as they talked and discussed amongst themselves, they realized that there was still one elder in the community that had hunt and hunted and killed lions. And they needed to discuss with him how that could happen. And because it hadn't happened in so long, it was kind of a lost knowledge. But he knew how to do this, and he gathered the gathered the village together, and he taught the young men how to kill the lions. What do you guys think of that story? How does it relate to medical missions? Anybody have any thoughts? Don't go to outside sources to find out what you need. That's a good thought. Find out what they know. Short-term fixes for long-term problems also. Learn from those who have gone before you. That's a valuable lesson as well. What I drew from this story having... At this time when I heard this, I was just brought, my wife and I were just brought on to Mercy Ships to help coordinate some of their short-term medical teams and, and, and efforts and try to fit those medical teams in with their, the long-term development projects that were going on on the ground. What I took from this was an understanding that uh, we seem to think sometimes we can get together and have all the problems and solve problems for other folks. And in reality, there are, there are many lions in developing communities, maternal mortality, child mortality. Of, and, and, and the answers will never come from outside the community. Uh, and our responsibility as brothers and sisters in the Lord is to walk alongside people in a way that allows them to see their own gifts and abilities. But I didn't think my short-term medical groups were doing that very well. 
And, in fact, we had begun to study short-term missions and its impact. And we began to ask people on the receiving end of missions what, uh, what they thought of our efforts. And I was kind of disheartened originally. You know, I, 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 got, a, I got an email back from the, uh, uh, some Peace Corps uh, folks that were Christian, Christian that worked with us on a medical team. And, and they kind of sent me an email that just knocked me off my chair that said, you know, we're really regretful that we participated in your short-term medical brigade. And I said, why? I know, you know, we, we helped people. We, we, we did what we felt the Lord was calling us to do. But they said, yeah, but the, but the local medical community really felt like you subverted their authority. And I said, what local medical community? Because the pastor that took me to that community told me there wasn't any medical services in that community. And it began to open my eyes to realize that, uh, that maybe I needed to really research what was already happening in those communities. And when we did that, I came up with some case presentations that, or uh, Glenn, could you help me pack, pass some of these out? I'm going to pass these out, and I'd just like to read some of them and talk to you guys about them. If you could take this side, I think Mick would probably be willing to help me take this side. Oh, great, thanks. Some of these, uh, I'm going to do these in a few minutes. Some of these are uh, in... The book that I wrote, and this is a copy of the book. I've got about a dozen copies downstairs. But if you're uh, young and you like techie stuff, you can get it on Amazon as an ebook for three bucks. And I put a whole bunch of resources in there that you can just click on, and it'll take you to those resources uh, through WHO and some other stuff. So uh, I think you'll find the resources in it valuable, and some of the information I think you'll find uh, very helpful in what you're trying to do in the way of short-term missions. It's called When Healthcare Hurts, an Evidence-Based Guide for Best Practices and Global Health Initiatives. And uh, it's written from a Christian perspective. You can see that the person who wrote it is a Christian and that it was written from a church-based mission. But it, I, I wrote it specifically so that secular programs and schools and such could use it as well without, without a lot of Christianese and such. So uh, I've... I, I, Pray that the schools that are doing global health work will continue to try to use this and implement some of the some of the ideas in it. Today, what I'm going to present, what what you're getting here in an hour is something we do as a whole weekend workshop. Of so I'm kind of com- cramming it down to bite-sized portions. Of so I'm going to have time to present some of the problems and have you guys talk about them. I'm not going to have time to kind of share with you some of the solutions that we've come about, but you'll find them. If you get a copy of the book, you'll find them in there, and you'll find some. And we'll, we'll talk about a couple things, but just not. Uh, there is one other resource I want to point you guys to for your churches. If you if you have your churches doing short-term teams of any kind, medical or otherwise, this is just a fantastic resource. The Steve Saint Missions Dilemma Series. It's a great study to do before you take the lead a team into the field. It really helps shape their understanding of some of the dynamics that are important. Uh, 
Yep. Is that available downstairs? That is, I think they have some at the iTech booth, uh, at Steve Saint's booth, but you can also get it online. And if you're if you Google it or you Google it or what you know check type it into uh, type it into YouTube and you'll get the the promo on it. It's it's you'll you'll like it. It's really good. Mix, you know what? Mission's dilemma. Could I get one of those back from you? I just realized I gave them all away. <laughs> Let's see which ones do we want to look at here. We're not going to have time to look at them all, but I do want to. Uh, I do want to talk about a couple of them. Number, case number one, I think, is important to discuss. Of, and, and this is something that is a true story that we found, gathered from a community development worker near Santa Rosa Capan, Honduras. So look, I'll read it for you. Of, a general medical team was serving a village community in Central America. Maria, a 29-year-old mother of five, arrived at a clinic pharmacy where she received her medication after having her entire family seen by one of the physicians. Maria had three prescriptions for herself, and each child received uh, prescriptions for parasite medications and vitamins. In addition, three of her children were febrile, and two had been diagnosed with otitis media, ear infections, obviously, and uh, and one with strep uh, strep pharyngitis. So each of them received antipyretics, Tylenol, and antibiotics. Dosages were carefully explained to Maria for the six year, or for the twelve year old, the six year old, and the six month year old child. Less than a week after the team left the country, Maria's six month old child was brought to the public hospital in the region in acute liver failure. Maria had mixed up the dosages of medications and had been overdosing her six month old with Tylenol for over a week. Of Patient safety is a huge issue that we're not paying enough attention to when we're doing short-term teams. What do you guys think of this? Any feedback? Yeah. Anybody seen this hap- uh, seen this scenario in their short-term medical team where a young mom comes up to the pharmacy counter with a crowd of 100 people behind her? And she gets instructions explained through a translator for a whole bunch of medicines. And then she takes these medicines in Ziploc baggies back home to her one-room dirt floor shack where there's nowhere to store them away from her children. Of Anybody see a problem with this? But yet we do it of... And I'm guilty too. Believe me, I'm not preaching from Sinai. I just I look back on some of these things and I went, "Oh my goodness, maybe we need to rethink this." So, uh, just food for thought. Uh, I think this is something. This is what I would consider. And there's two realms of safety that I consider that we need to consider in short-term missions. One is patient safety, and the other is developmental safety. And what do I mean by that? This obviously exemplifies the patient safety issues. But in developmental safety, there's other things that we need to consider. Let's look at case presentation number two. A general medical team is requested by a missionary in Guatemala. The missionary's home church in Vancouver has doctors and nurses and non-medical volunteers that went in response to the request. 
The team was directed by the missionary to three communities where they held clinics and local churches. They saw 200 patients a day for seven days. That's a pretty productive team, productive group. Rural, this was in a rural area they believed to have no access to health care. However, on the second day, Dr. Hernandez, the primary health care provider for the area, arrived to extend his welcome to the team. His clinic was only two blocks away from where the team was working. Later, a translator stated that Dr. Hernandez is his cousin, may, and he may have to close his clinic. Uh, he may have to close his clinic because he's having difficulty making ends meet. Apparently, volunteer medical teams were coming to the area every two to three months, and each time they did, his business dropped off significantly for the several weeks. In addition, his office was closed during the time the teams were there because no one wants to go to the local doctor because everybody knows the gringo doctors are so much better. At church on Sunday... You run into Dr. Hernandez again, and you learn that he is board certified in internal medicine in the U.S. And he has a fellowship, and he did a fellowship with a Pan American Health Organization in Washington, D.C. I like to try to put this in perspective by saying if, if a group of Canadian physicians were to come down here and set up in the parking lot of the local hospital or uh, private practice, how would that be viewed by the physicians here? And they said, well, you know, we know that you guys have healthcare access problems and the healthcare system here in the United States isn't as equitable as it should be, and, and uh, so we're just going to come and provide free care in your parking lot. That probably wouldn't go over so well, would it? <laughs> Unfortunately, we do a lot of that. And that can be avoided. And please hear me when I say I'm not saying don't go. Uh, that's not the message from here today at all. The message is we need to rethink this. And we can. And there are good, effective strategies. 90% of the problems that you're going to encounter that are created by short-term medical teams can be eliminated by interacting and collaborating with local health systems. There are a lot of mission hospitals and health programs that are dying for help. Uh, we are, we felt called not that many years ago to start a long-term sending organization for healthcare missionaries. And the reason being is there's hundreds of hospitals that are just dying for support staff and for help. And many of them will work with you guys and would love to have your assistance. But Sometimes I think we want to go with our own agenda, and we don't want to subvert, you know, we don't want to submit our agenda to those who are serving long-term. I've said something, I think I said it in the book, and I've said it a few times over the years that I've taken some flack for, but I'll risk repeating it right now, which is short-term missions, their original purpose, and I think their continued purpose, is to serve and support long-term missionaries in their programs and long-term ministries in their programs. And sometimes we want to go and we want to be up front, but that's not maybe the role the Lord has for us in short-term missions. And if we look for what God is already doing and come alongside to serve and support that, I think the efforts, our efforts, 
are far more glorifying to him. Uh, anybody have any thoughts? Does anybody has anybody seen this happen before? I have a question. Sure. One thing that I've seen sometimes in this type of a situation, the idea for the clinic is kind of pastor to pastor. And so the pastor of a church here in the US has a friend down there and then he recruits people from his church to go down without really checking out this situation. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I want to be sensitive, but my experience too has been is that it is a lot of pastor to pastor with really little input from the I would agree. Pastor to pastor of requests are some of the challenges. And I think as healthcare professionals, when we're asked to participate in that, we need to begin to ask uh, some important questions. In the book, I cover something called stakeholder analysis, which I think is every development organization does that. And it's to look at and to stratify, to some extent, all of the stakeholders in that community and who's going to be affected by a project or a program. So even if you're coming alongside a local program, you kind of want to know the stakeholders, so you want to know that you're not creating economic problems. There's another uh, th- another story. I don't know if I put it on here or not. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's look at case number seven real quick. After the 2010 earthquake in Desilene, Haiti, uh, the U.N. and the Haitian government required all facilities to accept patients regardless of their ability to pay. Now, this went on for three months. However, when the hospitals of and fee-for-service providers were again able to charge, they had, no, they had no patients or very few. The reason was that there were still so many volunteer medical teams coming in and providing free care that no one would go to the hospitals and and fee-for-service providers. And the challenge was, how do they stay afloat? This hospital, which is one of the most functional hospitals in Haiti, almost closed. After there was a uh, hurricane of, I think it was Hurricane Jean of several years, 2005, I think it was actually the same thing, the Red Cross and a whole bunch of volunteer medical teams. This hospital actually closed for a few months and had to go back and raise funds to open because there were so many volunteer medical teams giving out medicines and free care. So if – can you, anybody think of a way that you could, you could avoid this? Support the hospital. Support the hospital. Any ideas on how to do that? I agree. Uh, any other thoughts on how to do that? Sometimes in a relief situation, I feel like you don't have a choice. But if you're going to a team, uh, with a team, encourage the local hospital where you're going to charge something for your services, although not the going rate, enough to at least help them maintain. I know that's what one team did that came uh, to our country in West Africa. And they
that is a very good point. So they were able to come alongside the hospital and charge a decrease rate, but again, you know, uh, able to provide some resources for the hospital. And I think that's a, that's a key point. If you're working alongside the hospital, allow the hospital to charge. One of the things that we've done, in fact, with this particular hospital, when we were doing surgical groups, we would go in there, and yes, the hospital would pr pay for surgery, but we would have an amount set aside where those patients that showed up that just couldn't pay, we would pay the hospital. In fact, we still do that with our long-term missionaries that are surgeons. We try to have a pool of money that can pay for uh, some indigenous patients. Yes? Um, maybe if you're going to have a field clinic of some kind in order to get immediate relief and access to those resources, perhaps bring someone from the hospital with you so that there's a face there that they can recognize and say, hey, oh, this is a local doctor. Now we can identify if we need help in the future. They know someone already connected to you. That is, that is so incredibly important, I think, of... I would never do a medical team of any sort without I, my personal thing is, and I, I hope you'll take this away too, without really they, them owning and controlling the program. But short-term medical teams will do one of two things. They will build confidence in the local health system or they will diminish it. And you need to be careful about, and we need to be careful about our efforts, because if not, if they are not included, you will diminish confidence in the local health system. You know, nobody wants to go to the local doctor when everybody knows the gringo doctor is so much better. That is a common problem. So when you work alongside your colleagues in that country, you you do much to support their, uh, you know, support their position in the community as the health authority. And that's something, and especially if you're able to give them somewhat ownership over what you're doing, uh, to direct and guide what you're doing, to allow them to use. See, one of, there's another key point I bring out in the book, and that's that fielding a short-term medical team is not the goal. That's activity. Short-term medical teams are a means to a goal. They're not the goal. So what program is kind of, are you plugging into to be in the context of? And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But any other thoughts on, on what happened to this hospital in Haiti? Like high blood pressure is huge over there. So, you know, they explain that 
Yeah, I, I I don't know if everybody heard that, but it was you know that they're pairing doctors together and they work together in in within the Chinese health is it China within the Chinese health system and and that is is just a phenomenally powerful model. I I I love that because it's building relationships too, and uh, I saw there's another organization in Central America that I that does something very similar, and they're a development organization. They've been working to facilitate health development in the area and build up the health infrastructure. And one of the things they do, they say, okay, if you want to come and work with us as a short-term provider, that's great, but you've got to make a commitment to come for five years. And they're like, five years? What are you talking about? Yeah, you've got to come back twice a year for five years. And, and that was, uh, you know, people go, why would I do that? Well, you're going to be paired with a local provider if you're a GI doctor, you're going to work with, with a family practice doc there to give them GI input and help them develop some more knowledge about your specialty. And each time that doctor went back, they would take, you know, endoscopes and, and different, you know, sometimes it was urologists, sometimes it was, you know, it was a GI doctor, it was different, different specialty areas. Now that, that area of Honduras has the highest level of health care anywhere in Central America. They have fully functional ICU. They have, you know, monitoring capability. They have, and it's a, it's a government hospital. They have a, uh, a medical equipment uh, program that actually goes out and repairs their equipment. They have ultrasounds at all these, uh, these clinics. They repair their equipment because they brought, uh, they brought folks down to train staff there how to fix and maintain all of the, all of the medical equipment durable medical equipment. So now they have a whole program that does that, and they fix equipment for the other hospitals, so they've created a micro-enterprise problem. Just a word of caution, we had one mission where we incorporated the local clinic and to find out that the, the doctor there was totally incompetent, was um, selling meds from the pharmacy to locals, and, um, and uh, falsified his documentation. So we had to expel him That's terrible. I don't know if you've all heard that, but he's, you know, there was someone who was not properly credentialed and wasn't, didn't have the competency level, and, and it, was, it was some real challenges there. Uh, we would hope that that doesn't, uh, some of that is homework. Uh, anything can happen, uh, certainly, but the, I applaud the attempt to, you know, collaborate well. I think that's I think a key takeaway from any medical mission is that the best we, you know, the more we can collaborate with local health systems, the better off we're going to be. Uh, real quick, I'm, I am going to hit just a couple PowerPoints. Much of what we talk about in best practices is the unintended consequences of our good intentions. And uh, Paul Farmer and uh, Arthur Kleinman do a global health course every year at Harvard, and they talk much about this idea of unintended consequences of purposive action or unintended consequences of our, our good intentions. And best practices in healthcare missions really tends to be about attempting to foresee what those unintended consequences may be and how do we manage them. Really, when we're looking for best practices and you're trying to come up with what are the best practices that we need to identify, they really come about by 
supporting and promoting patient safety in healthcare. When you do patient, when you do meetings and planning meetings for a program to help put this program together, patient safety should always be on the agenda. When you set up in a clinic, if you're going to do a medical camp or a program, patient safety should dictate how that program is set up. Not of not it shouldn't be based on where I'm going to do health education or where I'm going to do evangelism. It should be based on how am I going to keep these patients safe? How am I going to dispense medications safely? How am I going to make sure that nobody has a bad outcome here? I mean, we're in med- medical field. We we all know unintended consequences. Every medication has side effects. Those are unintended consequences. Global health projects have consequence, unintended consequences, and we need to be able to think about those, know what they are, and try to prevent them, just like we do when you're prescribing medications. They also promote human dignity and empower those they serve. I say there's really four key areas to best practices of patient safety, facilitation of health development, healthcare system integration and collaboration, and in community empowerment. I will talk briefly about facilitation of health development because just by focusing some of your thought processes on patient safety, that will carry over to your local partners. So think about how, uh, how you can strategize about patient safety and collaborate with your local partners on that, and they will take away. You see, oftentimes our local partners in health and colleagues in other countries may look to you as a healthcare authority. So what are you leaving behind? That they should give out medicines in Ziploc baggies? That's not what we should be promoting as, as partners uh, in, in, in trying to achieve some level of, of good quality healthcare. This is kind of just a diagram that, that, um, that how they interact but, you know, collaboration with the healthcare system makes patient safety more achievable. That's kind of the, the key takeaway. And, and collaboration on patient safety can improve patient safety on both sides of that collaboration, both there to leave behind and with what you're doing. This is just about quality, basic quality improvement. We think about this stuff in our own hospitals and health programs all the time. So this is something that we need to take into consideration in our short-term efforts as well. The problem is, is that there's two primary assumptions that are really harmful and they're impeding patient safety. And these are that the first assumption is, you know, anything a medical team can offer in their limited time there is beneficial. This assumption is sometimes stated as something is better than nothing. How many people have heard that before? The problem is, is when, when the something has the potential to harm Maybe something isn't better than nothing. So we need to be very cautious, and we need to think through that process. Uh, The second is, because we have limited time, our emphasis should be on the quantity of patients that we see and not on on the quality. And that's another assumption and belief that has really led to a lot of damage and problems. I don't have all the answers for this, and it's going to look different wherever you're working and however you're interacting with the community, but you need to be careful about not carrying this forward. Don't count numbers. Count quality. Count 
the kids that didn't get poisoned because we took care of what we're doing. That's very, very important in what we're doing. I just outlined a couple things from the, the Maria story, but oftentimes some of the issues are non-medical church volunteers are often used to fill prescriptions, and then instructions are given through translators by a nurse or paramedic. Would you allow the, one of the volunteers at your church to go into the pharmacy and fill prescriptions for you here? It's probably not a good idea in a developing community either when you're doing patient care. Uh, caregivers may receive several prescriptions, usually in Ziploc baggies, often receiving instructions in front of a crowd of people. Uh, those caregivers then take those baggies home, I guess, to one-room dirt floor shacks like we discussed before. Uh, patients often hold cultural beliefs about medications uh, that further cloud their understanding. Big pills are for big people, little pills are for children, red pills are for blood problems, blue pills are for stomach problems. I've seen all of those. Uh, so a cultural understanding of medications is incredibly important as well. Uh, in studying the quality of short-term health care teams of, in the Dominican Republic, Don and Don came up with uh, a kind of a frightening statistic to me that patient, 36% of the patients seen in, in one of their recent health care teams had shared their medications with one or more people, <laughs> some of whom were children. So a lot of the cultural beliefs held about medications and how of the cultural understanding is, I mean, according to the WHO, only about 50% of the medicines you give out will ever be taken correctly anyway. Uh, and that would be including your patients here. But when you have cultural understandings that, that cloud that and all the other things that are going with that, they just give us food for thought that we really need to kind of think about all of these implications. Uh, WHO tells us that 125 children per day lose their lives as a result of poisonings, and the vast majority of those are pharmaceutical-related. So keep that in mind next time you want to hand somebody a bag of pills with in Ziploc baggies. Uh, I'm not going to cover all these studies. They're in the book if you want to look at them. But the big takeaway is Ziploc baggies are never acceptable for dispensing pharmaceuticals. Drug dealers do that. We should not as medical professionals. Uh, these pill bottles are very, very inexpensive. You can buy them uh, in a number of places wholesale. You can take a whole duffel bag full of them for $100. And the upside to that is you're leaving something tangible behind that if you can educate the mom about keeping that, the next time she goes to get medications, she can put them in there, and she's got some way to keep them out of the hands of her children. Oh. Sorry about that. Uh, there is a couple WHO safety. I try to pull, pull out some of the key points from a lot of the WHO literature in the book, but there are a couple key points that you need to take away to sustain patient safety. Of this is one of them, and this comes right out of the IMCI guidelines, and it's a mother of, the mother of children prescribed home medications must, for each child, verbalize the medication instructions, demonstrate measuring the dose of medication, and administer the first dose of medication under supervision of a licensed provider. That could be a nurse, that could be a pharmacist, that could be a physician. 
of attempt to limit the number of prescriptions to each family. We want to, you know, give what's necessary, but not what is of, you know. I know sometimes we have a tendency because we know these folks don't have great access to health care. We want to just treat everything for them and give them all these medicines, and we've got to be very, very cautious about that. Uh, each child treated uh, should have medication dosages labeled with each child's name and age, education before medication. The other thing is is that uh, it, you need to think about the privacy issue uh, in a private consultation room. Teams handle this differently, but that's the standard. Instructions need to be given in a private consultation room. If you set one up next to the pharmacy where the pharmacist or, or RN is doing patient education, even with a translator, that's fine, but it can't be in front of a crowd where mom's trying to hurt her children like cats. Uh, she needs to have time to really process, and you know that she's taking away what she needs to know about how to, how to take care of her children with these medicines. Of some some groups do it this way. They have a runner that will the of if the provider writes a prescription, they have a central pharmacy, but they send somebody over to the pharmacy to fill the prescriptions, come back to the exam room, and explain the medications to them there. You see, local providers are taught to do this. We have I've seen us really mess that up in Central America. We you know, they tell us, no, we're supposed to do it this way. And then we come in and say, oh, no, 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 we'll just send them over to the pharmacy. Well, they're taught to do it this way because they're following the World Health Organization standards for care. Uh, and then we go in and tell them, no, it's okay to do it another way. So we need to know these standards of care, and we need to try to, try to accommodate them. Uh, I kind of touched on this uh, earlier, just kind of that, you know, you're either going to build confidence or you're going to diminish it. So when you work, when you think about developing these projects when you're with your church or with your health program, keep that in mind and, and develop strategies that are going to build confidence in the local health system, not diminish it. You want them to be seen as the health authority. And remember relief, the idea of relief versus development that Brian talked about the other night. One of the biggest problems with medical teams is they tend to be very relief-oriented. And there are some great strategies for kind of shifting that, like uh, uh, CHE is one of them. Every, anybody not know what CHE is, or it, does everybody know what CHE is? Community Health Evangelism. Before you leave, if you have never heard that word or you're not familiar with it, you need to go by the Global Chain Network booth on the first floor uh, and pick up some information from them. And, and they are just a network of over 500 organizations that have developed. And, and CHE is such a great tool to, uh, to empower and to teach about health and understanding of health in communities in a participatory way. Of not from a perspective of I know everything, but how do we solve these problems together? And that's something that we should be taking as tools with us, uh, even with the medical teams, because, yes, there's a place for primary care. I have a whole list of questions, and I think I'm going to run out of time to get to them, but I'm going to pass them out anyway, and you guys can take these questions with you. Some of the uh, – they, they appear in the book, but I think it's important to uh, – to ask these questions. On one side of this document, there's a whole list of questions that, uh, oh yeah, thank you, that would be great. One side of this document, there is a whole list of questions that 
just kind of ask us, how can we do medical missions better? On the other side of this document is a uh, list by Dr. Arnold Gorski, who some of you may know or have attended his workshops here. Dr. Gorski wrote a uh, paper that I would suggest every physician in this room read called Harm from Drugs and Short-Term Missions. And this is just a short list of 16 quick references of why drugs in the short-term setting can be very harmful. Not that they shouldn't be prescribed, but you have to take an understanding of the patient safety issues with you when you begin to prescribe so that we can avoid some of the problems associated with them. So please hear me. I'm saying it's not about taking these. And there are some drugs that probably want to be left behind, and there are some you want to narrow your formulary down significantly. Of There is going to be a need for treatment. There is always a need for curative care. Pairing CHE with that or working with CHE programs is a phenomenal way to, to make these teams more developmental. And working with a local health establishment is another way to make them more developmental. But these, I hope, will inspire some thought and some ideas on how to address these issues in your own medical teams and your own healthcare programs. I want to address the idea of paternalism because it goes back to the lion story. See, the lion story exemplifies paternalism. And, and to me, short-term medical teams, the biggest problem with them is they tend to just by nature be very paternalistic. We want to decide what is best for a community. We want to say, we, you, we know you need health care, so we're going to go and deliver health care. Uh, and we have never really even assessed that. We haven't figured out what the Lord is doing in that community and how to come along beside it. And it may be that the community that you've picked needs health care, but you need to work very cautiously within the construct of what health care is already being provided in that country uh, and know what health care is being provided in that country. In the book, there's a community assessment page that I think is very helpful. Uh, that came out of the CHE of uh, the Global Chain Network, it's not mine. None of this stuff is really my thoughts. It's stuff that we've been talking about. Uh, with uh, We've been part of an international best practices group for about a decade now that we've been trying to figure out how to do this thing we call short-term medical missions better and make sure that we don't cause harm. And all of these, the ideas in this book, they're, they're really not mine. I've just pulled them from different sources, and we've, in different discussions we've had with different people, I just wanted to make sure that somebody put it all together so that it would be available as a resource. Uh, so, you know, it's there for you guys, and, uh, and so am I. Uh, I have a... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you my email at the end. But I think the thing about what we need to take away uh, from the idea of paternalism is that no one really clearly understands the effect on the human spirit and self-worth of a person who is forced to accept charity. What we do know is that helping people is really about encouragement, edification, facilitating the achievement of self-sufficiency. And if, we're n if not well thought out, our efforts can make people feel like they're incapable of meeting their own needs or indebted to our benevolence. And the only dependency we want to create as, Christian, as Christians is on God. And, and that's our heart. Of, I know that I, I probably, some of you, I probably uh, gave you an awful lot to think about. 
And some of you are probably familiar with this stuff, but I just want to say that I'm available if you have questions. And if you're trying to work through some of these questions, we, we don't have all the answers, but we may be a little farther ahead in the process and have a couple ideas for you to maybe tweak and change and, and develop on your own. The other thing I want to talk about is, you know, health education has become a very big point, and, and this is something that um, we can do, but it's far better done by local providers and by local, local folks. And we, as, uh, not, never having walked in the shoes of a young mom who, uh, uh, who has all the challenges of her life every day, Speaking into her life becomes very difficult from our perspective and where we live and where we grew up. and We don't understand some of those concepts. So asking her to boil water isn't going to work because she has a life that's so hard you can't even comprehend all the stuff that she has to do in a day. And adding one more thing to that, unless you've walked in her shoes, it's really hard to help her develop strategies to do that. So they're going to come up with those strategies. And as you talk and you communicate and you facilitate discussion on these issues and you get local folks to facilitate discussion on these issues, that's where those answers are going to come from, not from us. So be cautious about how we do health education. Understand that worldview issues are huge. Uh, and if you just tell people it's the wrong way to do things, you're not going to affect any change. But you do want to plant seeds and get people discussing things. Okay, there is my cell phone number and my email, email and our website. Uh, you are free to contact me anytime if you have questions, if I can do anything and point you guys in the right directions. We do not do short-term mission teams anymore. Uh, I, I want to talk about this stuff, but I don't want to have a stake in the game because I think sometimes that the, a lot of the mission organizations are drawing funding out of their short-term teams, and I don't, I don't want to be... That's not a bad thing. I mean, I think missions need to support themselves, but I don't want to be trying to – I just don't want to have a stake in that game right now. Of I don't think it's right for us. I can't objectively speak about it and be doing short-term medical teams of my own. Uh, but I, I probably – at some point we will – I'm going to start doing some more education with churches, trying to get them involved. Uh, we will be doing education seminars at our base in Texas – uh, where we can do weekend workshops on this for very low cost to folks. If you have an interest in, in holding a workshop at your church, we would love to come and talk to you about that and, and just help do more of a workshop environment where people have time to really think about these issues, write some solutions down, and we can brainstorm together uh, and, uh, and just talk about this stuff. So God bless you guys, and I hope it was worth your time coming.